Welcome to an empowering episode of Miss Poppins, The Art of Parenting. I'm your host, Nikki Rishi, founder of Miss Poppins app, a revolutionary parent tech app and 180 Elevate, a social networking platform for conscious leaders. Today, we're joined by a special guest, Minal Lili, the founder of Little Mixins and the author of The Baby in the Biome. In this episode, we deep into the intersection of entrepreneurship, parenting, and the groundbreaking approach to preventing food allergies in children. Minal, a mother herself, transformed her personal challenges into a mission to end food allergies. I, as your host, am also passionate about creating digital parenting solutions through Ms. Poppins. And let's go ahead and get started on this journey to explore the science behind early allergen introduction. Welcome, Minal. So nice to have you today. Thank you for joining us on our episode. Thank you for having me. Uh, let's talk about your journey in creating Little Mexicans. It's definitely inspiring, and it, and it is something that stemmed from personal efforts and a personal um, story. So can you share with our audience how this personal experience as a mother influenced your approach to developing early immune support products for children? Sure. Um, you know, I think we I got involved in the food allergy space after my older son developed a whole host of food allergies. And I was really new to the disease, I guess is the right way to put it, because I didn't have any of this in my family. My husband's family didn't really have food allergy. So we had been under the impression that this was a genetic condition. And so it wasn't really on my radar in a big way, you know? And, um, but then my son, you know, started developing what they call the atopic march. Uh, and this is a really classic presentation uh, you develop eczema, then food allergy, and then asthma. As you get older, you get uh, seasonal allergies and rhinitis. And you know, being a researcher, I was sort of thrown, and I needed to understand where did this come from. So I got down deep into the literature of trying to understand where this disease came from. And it just so happened that right at that time, a really big study had been published that showed they still didn't understand why people were developing food allergy, but what was happening and what we knew now was that early allergen introduction, meaning if babies were regularly exposed to these proteins in a very critical window, roughly six to 10 months old, they could prevent up to 97% of peanut allergy. That was the study was specifically on peanut. And that's, you know, again, as I would say, that's vaccine level efficacy, right? Most vaccines don't even prevent 97% of a disease. And this is really where the business came from because, okay, great. We can effectively vaccinate against food allergy, right? But most vaccines, you go to the doctor, you sit for two minutes, they give you a shot, the baby cries, you give them a lollipop, everything's over, right? And there you are. Maybe you have a cold, but you don't have to do anything. The challenge with food allergy prevention, if you will, is that it requires a parent to expose a baby to the protein for weeks at a time. And, and it's actually an open question, I, or let me step back and say, there was a question, Is it really? does it really matter if we keep going for weeks at a time? And it turns out that it does, because they looked at parents who just introduced early, meaning between four and six months old, they gave their baby some peanut, right? And there was no vaccine effect. There was no reduction in the rate of food allergy relative to doing nothing. But if you regularly expose the baby to the peanut protein specifically, then you get this reduction. And that's hard, right? For any of us, imagine even something 
that took as little effort as a vaccine. If you had to do it every single week, that would be difficult. And a good analogy is uh, maybe like iron, right? So a lot of us, when our babies are young, we need to do iron supplementation. And if the only way to get iron was, let's say, to puree spinach and make sure your baby ate enough spinach in a day, and then you had to do that every single day for a couple months, the babies would never be okay, right? They would not get the iron supplementation. The only way it works is when we make it concentrated and really easy to dose. And that was the that was the core insight I think that I had early on is when I was trying to prevent the allergies in my younger son, I very quickly realized the only way this was going to work is if someone effectively turned it into a dietary supplement that could be dosed. Interesting. And so we talk not just peanuts, but that would I would assume is the case with meat, fish, and eggs, right? Any kind of dairy. And they say to introduce that slowly. What I'm interested in knowing is what came first, chicken or the egg? They say introduce it slowly so that your child at six months, if there's an allergic reaction or the child's allergic, you can monitor it. You don't know if they're allergic, but your research and the research out there is indicating that if you were to introduce it in slow doses, it helps with the allergic effect, correct? And so what would you tell parents that are just starting to wean off of the milk, introduce solids to the kids, these supplements? A lot of folks are a little hesitant on supplements, right? New products, they tend to go more natural. So let's talk a little more about that theory of is it the allergy that came first? Is it the fact that you introduce foods and then it defeats the allergy? And then also the fact that parents are hesitant on not giving anything else but natural fresh foods. How do you revert that stigma associated with that? Sure. Okay. There's a, a lot to unpack there. So the first thing to understand is that a food allergy is an immune system reaction, right? And so you think about a cold. If you have a cold, your body is presented with a virus or a bacteria, but let's let's keep this simple and think about a virus that comes into your body and then your body reacts to that virus, right? And what a food allergy is, is almost like a disease where your body completely overreacts to the virus. And so it handles the virus, but then kind of goes a little bit berserk. But the important thing to understand about that is you didn't have, nobody comes born with the antibodies to every single virus out there. That's not how it works. Yeah. The immune reaction is secondary to the presentation of the virus, right? Does that first make sense? Completely. So the idea that you should go slow and that you should introduce one food at a time actually has no scientific basis. Mm. It's never been studied because the thing about food and like viruses, there's no stopping them. They, they're all in your environment, right? So really what you're doing by avoiding giving babies these proteins is that they're getting environmental exposure. They're touching the dust of all of the food we eat in our, in our houses, but they're not being properly presented that protein through their gut. And when, when the food is presented through the gut, the body tends to create the sort of antibodies that teach tolerance to this food, right? Because we're supposed to eat these things. Whereas things that are presented on our skin, our body actually biases towards developing the antibodies that cause the reaction. So the key there is that nobody's born with a food allergy. You cannot discover a food allergy, but the food allergy can develop. And the only way to prevent it from developing is to properly present the protein 
at the right age so that your body develops the correct antibodies to that protein rather than the wrong ones. And so you want, you know, what we call the IgG4s as opposed to the IgE antibodies. And when you get a skin test or a blood test, they're looking for the IgE antibodies. The, it's not totally fair to call them the wrong ones, but in this version, I'm going to call it the wrong antibodies to this. Yeah. Um, those are the antibodies that would trigger an allergic reaction. And so when we think about dietary supplements, I think the other thing to think about is that that's really just a categorization, right? So I'll give you a really basic example, which is, what level of processing is okay with you is arbitrary, right? So obviously you can't feed a baby whole peanuts. They'll choke, right? So parents would say, oh, okay, but I'll, I'm comfortable giving the baby peanut butter. Fine. But peanut butter has already been a processed peanut, right? It's not a pure peanut, I suppose. It's been pressed and ground. Okay. So are you comfortable with peanut butter powder, which is now pressed and ground and defatted? And they're pressed so that the oil is taken out, right? And then the dietary supplements are not actually much more processed than that, right? There's nothing to them that is that different than a peanut butter powder. And, and so you take that concept, if you will, to any of the other nuts or soy or sesame or egg, really all you're doing in this case is dehydrating the food. And when you dehydrate it, it allows you to grind it. And that's the core there is you're just making it infant safe. But the dietary supplement, the only ingredient in the supplement is the thing like it's a peanut supplement that is a hundred percent peanut or a hundred percent almond so if you're comfortable giving your baby a pouch that is also a processed form right and, and anything anything you feed your baby you fundamentally do have to puree it early on right so you're doing the exact same processing it's just a question of are you doing the processing in your house or are you outsourcing the processing to somebody else and so really it's just a question of time Right, because you're right, like there's nothing stopping a parent from properly preparing all of the nuts and seeds for their baby other than time. And that was the realization, right? I was traveling three or four days a week and I was trying to prepare these foods for my baby in an infant safe way so he wouldn't choke, which meant I couldn't do this on a daily basis. I had to do it, say, for a month's worth or a week's worth at a time. But then they're not shelf stable. Then I could introduce bacteria and accidentally make him sick, you know? And that's sort of where I went back to my chemical engineering degree and said, well, we can do this in a way that would be safe and infant safe, you know, from a choking perspective, preserve all of the nutrients and preserve the protein. So you're just taking all that thinking and work out. And we'll go back to a statement you made about the age, right? That's what our audience is going to be particularly interested in. What age do you introduce these allergens or these new foods outside of mom's milk or formula? And so in your experience, in your research, of course, they say six months baby led weaning. There's so much study about it. Miss Poppins coaching in that particular category is all about that approach as well. Can you talk a little bit more about what age you found where all these new foods, solids should be introduced. Is it six months or is it actually earlier than that, four months? Because there's a new study indicating as early as four months would solve a lot of these allergy mysteries, but that might be too early, right? Yeah. And also what age would you introduce these supplements as a solution that you are referring to if we were interested to learn? So the rule of thumb is that you're not supposed to introduce allergens until you're introducing other foods. They're part of the food introduction process. The exclusive idea of exclusive breastfeeding for six months has no real scientific basis to it. There isn't something magical that happens at six months. That 
rule was come up with because they wanted to encourage women to breastfeed for at least six months. What we know is, for example, if a baby starts eating solids at four months, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with eating solids at four months as long as you're still getting the same amount of breast milk. What you're not supposed to do is swap out breast milk for food, if that makes sense, right? With the concept of gag reflux, right? So the scientific studies shows that at six months, the gag reflux, the, the sitting up posture, it's all there so that you can actually introduce them safely. So that's kind of that. That's, I don't disagree with that. I was just about to say is it's a per person dependency, right? So we try to use these numbers, but babies don't fit to numbers. Like not every baby starts walking at exactly one year old, right? That's an easy one to think about. Some babies walk at nine months. Some babies don't walk till 18 months. Saying exactly when to do things is as arbitrary as saying, well, I need you to put baby gates up at exactly four months and three days, right? But what if my baby was crawling before that? What if my baby doesn't crawl for four months after that? Well, what are the baby gates going to do if I, you know, if my baby's not moving, there's no reason to put the baby gates up, right? So every baby is different. And so my point is my older son by four months old was could house food and he was still drinking 30 ounces of breast milk a day, but he could house food. My younger son didn't really want to eat until almost seven months old, right? So there's two sons in the same household and they can be very different. So my point there is it's at the time of food introduction is when you want to be introducing all Ah. the allergens as well. And for some babies that can be as early as four months old and some babies it might be a bit later, but the rule of thumb is typically that's by six months. But again, right, you have a preemie that's not going to be exactly six months for that child necessarily. And I think that that's really the right rule of thumb because the immune system makes major switches as these things happen. So you have a microbial setup that's very dependent on the breast milk. And that microbial setup starts to shift as soon as you start adding food, right? When you are just drinking breast milk, ideally you have this massive amount of B. infantis and you have that particular kind of, you know, bifidobacteria in your gut. And then it starts to switch over as you introduce food to process the food. And that is exactly the time when the immune system starts switching too, right? Because the immune system is responding to what is being presented to the gut. And so you want it to be part of that presentation. So you shouldn't be adding these supplements to formula or something just because you hit the four month mark, you know? Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. It's a different way to look at it. And of course, the Pediatrics Academy, they use uh, percentiles. They say, you know, not all babies are made equal. So what were the challenges? So to look at it a different way, you know, you have this concept, you've given birth to this conception, this idea, you are navigating some of the complex landscape of pediatric nutrition, scientific research. What challenges have you faced if we were to end with this question in establishing your brand, bringing the brand recognition, the awareness of a new concept out there? Every idea that is unique and innovative faces a challenge, right? It, it faces stigma. A hundred percent. I'm sure you've you've navigated those hurdles. Um, tell us a little more about it, but how did you persevere and how did you solve that? More on the entrepreneurship side. Yeah, absolutely. The questions you had are exactly the same questions everybody else had. Initially, when we said this, we got a ton of pushback from the AAP from the Quad AI, uh, meaning the the major allergy association, the American College of Allergy, pediatricians, doctors, payers, caregivers, all this stuff, right? Because people get so hung up on these rules. It's, It's sort of like, not to get into a whole debate, you know, but it was like when people came up with the six foot rule in COVID, right? It's a guideline, like it's, 
nothing happens at six foot one inch versus five feet, 11 inches, right? Like it's not this hard line, but people, unfortunately, they get so hung up on these lines. And so the same question people had, and I think the AAP's biggest question was basically, if parents know about early allergen introduction, will they stop breastfeeding earlier? So major studies were done and they asked this question and no, actually women continue breastfeeding or formula feeding just as long. Will it change how much food the baby is getting? And that was actually a relevant question. One of the things we made the point of, which is if you were trying to feed babies protein, like in an adult, protein is very sating. You eat a lot of protein so that you don't eat a lot of other calories, right? But with babies, we want them to eat a lot of calories. They're trying to grow. You don't want them to just like chug a bunch of protein because it'll keep them from eating a diverse, healthy diet. So what happens if you suddenly tell parents you need to eat a lot of these seven foods? Will they actually stop eating uh, broccoli and peas and, you know, other things? Will they swap out one thing for another? And in fact, what we found and what we were able to show with some of these doctors is that, yes, you will. If you ask people to use nut butters and other whole foods, they will swap out broccolis and other vegetables for these nuts and eggs and things. But if you do it as a very dosed sort of supplement, then they don't swap it out. They actually add it to all those vegetables. And so that it was better to actually concentrate it, which maybe was counterintuitive. And the last big piece we had to prove to people, which... I still can't believe I have to prove this to doctors, is that parents need this help, right? And I can't tell you the number of doctors I say. They're like, well, parents can feed these foods to their kids. It's not a problem. And I said, how many parents do you know? How many of your patients actually cook all their meals at home? And I know that on the Miss Poppins, there might be people who, who do this more often. And I was talking to a doctor. He said, well, there was, you know, there's no need for anything because parents, people can do this alone. And I said, well, how many patients do this? He's like, yeah, I don't cook any of my meals. I buy everything. And I said, well, if you know that about yourself, that you won't take out a pot, why do you suddenly believe other people are going to take out a pot and do all this stuff? Like who has this time in the day? And it's a psychological pushback. And that was the biggest piece we had to actually convince people of. I think when you're conceiving of a company is actually anticipating all that, right? We anticipated these. And so we actually built studies and we built efforts to prove these facts to people ahead of time so that when they came with that resistance, we were able to say, no, actually this was studied and it's not true or it is true or here's what you can do. And over time, you know, we've seen all of these organizations actually start to back us. And so now, you know, instead of working against them, I don't, I don't mean that to say that like they're endorsing our brand or product particularly. I'm speaking more on a scientific level and a conceptual level that a lot of the leadership, a lot of the allergists are, understand now why parents might need a tool. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and again, nobody thinks that we could just tell moms eat spinach. You don't need a prenatal vitamin. But that is fundamentally true. Oh, it is. You can get folic acid from food, right? But we don't do that because nobody would get the folic acid then. And I always point out to doctors, like, you will write a vitamin D script without thinking about it. But vitamin D comes from the sun. Can you think of an easier vitamin to get with no effort, right? And so you're trying to tell me that parents have a hard time getting sunlight, but they're going to go home and cook spend 20, 30 minutes cooking an egg three times a week for, separately for this child? Like, explain that to me, you know? <laughs> and, and they can. It's just, again, these things, but we start to think of things a certain way and we forget to later think about why, how did we come to that conclusion. 
you know, well, and, that, and that's really important. And yeah, the thing about change is it has to start somewhere. It's inevitable, but there's a lot of resistance to it. So good luck, Minal, I, as I conclude today's passionate conversation uh, with you. <laughs> I am reminded of the power of innovation and dedication in both parenting and entrepreneurship coming up with these innovative ideas. So thank you for your invaluable contributions and for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. To our listeners, we hope this episode of Miss Poppins' Art of Parenting empowers you with the knowledge and inspiration as you navigate your own parenting journey. Stay tuned for more episodes where we continue to bring expertise, support, and community right to your ears. Until next time, embrace the art of parenting with confidence and love. Thank you.